There's a word in Pali which has both a very nice sound and also a very nice meaning. The word is bojanga. The meaning of the word, it's, it's a compound of two words, of bodhi and anga. Bodhi is wisdom. Bodhi is awakening. And anga means the limbs or the constituent factors. So bojanga together means the limbs of awakening or the factors of enlightenment. It's these qualities in the mind which awaken us from ignorance, awaken us from the forces of greed, from the forces of hatred, from delusion. And the great power of the Buddhist teachings, as he examined his own mind, as he came to awakening himself, he was able to see so clearly, to understand so clearly, the nature of this mind of ours, and to see which are the forces, which are the qualities that just lead us to more suffering, which lead to happiness, and which lead to enlightenment. Bojanga, the seven factors of enlightenment. The first of them, something which we never tire speaking of, although you may tire hearing of, is the most important. And it is the factor of mindfulness. Mindfulness is that quality This is in case you have forgotten. <laughs> Mindfulness is that quality of mind which notices very carefully what the object is. It comes in close to the object. And the characteristic of mindfulness, the quality of it is that it doesn't slip off. It doesn't slide away. So that's why it's described as coming face to face. So that we see the object, we're right there with it, in a very complete and full and non-distracted way. With mindfulness, we notice carefully one thing at a time. And because of this, it has the power to help us cut through the confusion in our minds. And so often in different situations, both in the meditation practice and in our lives, we get overwhelmed, we get confused, we don't quite know what's happening. When we take refuge in mindfulness, that is settling back just into the moment, connecting with just the arising object, in that moment, there's no confusion. And we're just with a breath, or just with a thought, just with a sensation. Sometimes we're noticing objects in a very microscopic way. But there's a great clarity of mind, and we're really seeing the momentariness and very minute aspects of arising phenomena. But mindfulness is not limited to that. Sometimes mindfulness takes a much larger object. Sometimes we take the whole body as an object. As when we're noting sitting and we're just getting a sense of the body. Sometimes when we're noting hearing, the mind expands even further. And we get that sense of great spaciousness in the mind and sounds just arising and vanishing in that space. Mindfulness is not dependent on how microscopic or how wide-angled the vision is. That will change at different times. One of the great gifts to us that mindfulness brings is the gift of keeping us in the present moment. When we're just noticing what is arising, 
then we're not lost in the past, we're not lost in the future. And there's a tremendous burden off of our minds and off of our lives. You've noticed countless times in these weeks how much of the time is spent in past and future fantasies. And they are fantasies because they're not actually what's happening right now, except as a thought in the present moment. And to see how we carry the past and future around, it's like we burden ourselves, investing such a strong reality in them. And in a moment of mindfulness, we remove that burden. We're just here, just with what's arising. As I mentioned on Wednesday night, the very heart of the Buddhist teachings about awakening is contained in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Discourse on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. It's laid out very systematically, the different domains of attention. There's the domain of mindfulness of the body. And in some ways, the development or the training of this is such a valuable training for carrying the practice into our lives. So the body is very obvious. We can be aware of the body in so many ways, be strengthening the mindfulness in so many ways. We're watching the breath, we're feeling the breath. It's mindfulness of the body. We begin to feel certain sensations. You know, in the whole range of sensation, it's mindfulness of the body. We're aware of movements in walking or moving about. It's mindfulness of the body. In each of those moments, the mind is pure, the mind is focused, the mind is aware of what's happening. Something interesting begins to develop from this mindfulness of the body. And that is, we begin to grow more fearless. Why is that? A good part of fear which arises in the mind comes or is born from attachment to the body. It's a very strong identification with an attachment to this that generates fear either at its dissolution or death or some kind of pain. What happens is we practice mindfulness of the body as we are observing very carefully We begin to go from that level of solidity and form, this sense that we identify with so strongly, yes, my body. We have the sense of being something quite solid. As the mindfulness grows, we're seeing moment to moment just changing sensations. There are probably very few of you who would say, my hardness or my heat much less likely to be identified with changing sensations than with some idea or concept or form of the body. So through the power of mindfulness, we begin to see actually the constituent elements of this body. We see how they're changing. There's less attachment, and from the less attachment, there's less fear. This is mindfulness of the body. The second domain of mindfulness, which is a critical, absolutely critical aspect of understanding our conditioning, is mindfulness of feelings. Again, the feelings in this context does not mean emotions. It means that quality of things being pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Why is it so critical? Because when we look carefully, when we're observing carefully, what we see is that it is these feelings of pleasantness and unpleasantness and neutrality which are conditioning the desire in the mind, the aversion in the mind, the delusion in the mind. 
when we're desiring something, what is it that we want from that experience? It's not really the object. What we're wanting is the pleasantness that may come with it. We're attached to the pleasant feeling. When we don't want something, you know, when there's some strong pain and we want to get rid of it, what is it that we want to get rid of? We want to get rid of the unpleasantness. And so it's the working of these feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, that continually drives us back and forth in our lives. I like this, I want this, I don't want this, I have to get rid of it. Mindfulness of these feelings, as opposed to reaction to the feelings, deconditions this very, very strong pattern in our minds and in our lives. When we're, when we're being mindful of a feeling, pleasantness arises, we simply note it. We note a pleasant feeling. That's what we're open to, we accept it. But there's no extra movement of attachment. We're simply being mindful. Pleasantness has arisen. Unpleasant feeling arises in the same way. When we're mindful, we're not driven to aversion. Unpleasant feeling, right? We simply notice it. We notice it. Unpleasant, unpleasant. And I'm sure you've had the experience many times now, since working with pain is such a big part of the practice. Just the difference in your experience between when the mind is reactive to pain and when it can simply be noting it, be mindful of it, the kind of freedom that's there, the spaciousness that's there. So it's helpful to be watchful for the arising of feelings when they're predominant. When there's strong pleasantness, strong unpleasantness, they should be noticed. Sometimes it's helpful to work backwards. Suppose we find ourselves caught in a strong reaction. Maybe we're lost in some fantasy for 15 minutes, half an hour however long. And we can't seem, we try to note fantasy seeing, it's not getting it, we keep getting lost. That would be the time to work backwards and, and really see, okay, what is it that the mind is being lured, allured by? And we see, it's not the content, it's not the particular story, it's the feeling quality, oh, pleasantness. So to work back and to note the pleasantness in the situation. The same thing if we're in a situation where we find ourselves struggling against something. And then we try noting the actual sensation, it's not working. To open to the unpleasant quality of it. It's quite amazing the power of mindfulness with these feelings to unhook us from the identified reaction. Feelings, this pleasantness, unpleasantness, neutral feelings, plays a very important role in the whole teaching of the Buddha on dependent origination. That's how contact conditions, feeling conditions, craving. Craving for or desire to be rid of. And so it's possible to develop a very precise and sensitive awareness to the arising of these feelings. This is the second domain of mindfulness. The third one is mindfulness of the mind. Mindfulness of the mind and mental states. And this includes the whole field of emotions. all the different kinds of emotions that arise in us, this is included in this field of mindfulness. And what it means is that we need to learn that particular balance of mind which opens to emotions, which allows us to feel the emotions without pushing them away, without trying to get rid of them, and without drowning in them. So much of the Buddhist teachings is called the middle way. This is a perfect example of finding the middle. To be open to it, 
without getting lost in them and without pushing them away. How to work with them when they're very strong. Because emotions have this powerful ability to color the mind, to condition the consciousness. And they're extremely powerful energies at times. Both very blissful ones and very painful ones, suffering ones. When they're strong, it's very helpful to ground the mindfulness in the body. So if we're feeling strong anger or fear or excitement or happiness, it's a very powerful emotion. First thing we can do is get grounded. And we feel how the emotions are playing in the body, what the particular sensations are. Noting the feeling quality. Is, is it a pleasant feeling? Is it an unpleasant feeling? Is it neutral? When there's something more than a passing phenomena, if it's simply a passing state that's coming and going quickly, there's no need to give special attention to them. But when they're strong in the mind, there's a whole sequence of ways of working which are extremely helpful to keep us actually mindful of them. The first is a clear recognition of what they are, of what the specific emotion is. Because if we don't recognize it, if we don't recognize it clearly, it's not possible to actually be mindful. Just as an example of this, which I've mentioned in previous courses, but it's, it's really illuminated for me this point. I was on retreat, this is quite a few years ago, and I was going through what felt like this tremendous bout of sadness. I was noting sadness, 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 sadness. And I was just felt like I was locked in this state. This went on for a long, long time. So then I looked more carefully and I saw that it wasn't sadness, that it was unhappiness. And as soon as I was accurate, as soon as I saw it clearly, the whole thing fell away because it allowed me to get aligned. It allowed me actually to be accepting. So accuracy with strong emotions that are staying, <coughs> accuracy is very important. The next quality that's important in working with emotions, and it's very subtle, is that of acceptance. Can we really be accepting of whatever mind state is there. Because as long as we are pushing them away in whatever degree, it can be a very slight pushing. That pushing away actually is feeding it, actually is locking it in. In this regard, take care with the in-order-to mind. You know, it's that, it's that state of mind, that imitation of mindfulness, which says, I'll be mindful in order for it to go away. You know, then it's not really acceptance. I had a very strong bout of this, again, quite a few years ago. Strong, strong fear, overwhelming fear. And I was noting and noting and noting and noting. It was only when I saw how I was trying to get rid of it through the noting, and then dropped in and thought, okay, this fear is going to be here the rest of my life. It's okay. That's where I discovered the it's okay mantra. You know, it, it was that fear, because it was so helpful. Just, it's okay, it's okay. And in that time of acceptance, again, just as with that unhappy, the whole thing you know, fell away. 
So there's recognition, there's acceptance. When there's strong emotion, and we feel like we recognize it clearly, and we feel like there's strong acceptance of it, but it still feels, we still feel caught. So another thing to look for. And that is understanding that there may, there may be a constellation of emotion. It may not just be one thing. There may be an underground spring which is feeding a particular mind state. And if we're noting the mind state but missing the spring, it just stays really locked in. Just as an example, there are many, you know, and we each have our own constellations. And suppose there's strong anger at something that happened. Anger, 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 and then you soften the tone, anger, anger, anger. <laughs> and you, you recognize it, you accept it. Maybe if you look further, you'll see underneath the anger, or the spring that's feeding it, is another feeling, maybe of hurt. You know, where there's really a deep feeling of hurt. That's another feeling. That also is not I, not self. It's another emotion which is arising. That has to be noted too. And it's quite amazing. Very often, as we note that, mindful of that, the anger falls away because it's no longer being fed. And the hurt actually comes and goes. Because in the being mindful of it, we're no longer either pushing it away because it's so uncomfortable or wallowing in it because we're actually being mindful. So there's a lot to learn about being free in emotion. So we don't get locked into states. Because that getting locked into them, if we're not being mindful, can create a strong sense of I, a strong sense of self. It solidifies everything. It solidifies ourselves, solidifies the situation. There's mindfulness of the body, of feelings, pleasant and unpleasant, mindfulness of emotions. The last of the foundations of mindfulness is mindfulness of the Dhamma. And what this means is that we become mindful of how different states are functioning in our experience. So, as an example, we might be aware of desire or anger and understand that they're functioning as hindrances, that they're keeping us or, or hindering us from getting concentrated. It's understanding how the sense experiences are happening, when we see or hear or smell or taste, being mindful of this whole process of sense object, contact with the sense base, there's a sound, there's the ear, and the consciousness which comes from it. So every time we're mindful of seeing, of hearing, of smelling, of tasting, that's mindfulness of the Dhamma. If we're looking very carefully, if we're observing precisely how that's happening, how that's arising. When we're aware of factors as being part of the Eightfold Path, this is mindfulness of the Dhamma, when we're aware of the factors of enlightenment, that mindfulness is a factor of enlightenment, this is mindfulness of the Dhamma. And so you see the tremendous scope of this quality. All the other factors of enlightenment need to be in balance. With mindfulness, no balance is needed because there's never too much mindfulness. We can't be too mindful. And so that's its great strength. It frees us, every moment of mindfulness frees us from the conditioned forces of grasping, of aversion, of delusion, 
It's the great purifying force. And it's really what constitutes a genuine maturity of being. You know, when we we feel that people have a real maturity and balance and depth, it's this quality of mindfulness. It's the quality of mind that's not getting continually caught up in every passing occurrence. There's a there's a profound inner space that's balanced. The Buddha said that when the four foundations of mindfulness are practiced repeatedly and consistently, then all the other factors of enlightenment will be developed. So all the bojangas, all these limbs of awakening, come from the repeated practice of mindfulness. That's why it's first on the list. The second of the limbs of enlightenment is something which is called investigation of the Dhamma. And this investigation of the Dhamma is the wisdom factor in the mind. Wisdom has the function of illumination. So as if we go into a dark room and we turn on a light, everything's illuminated. In that clarity, there's no bewilderment. There's no confusion. We see. We see exactly what's what. So this investigation of the Dharma is like turning on the light in the mind. It's what you've been... <laughs> contrary to... the manager's messages to turn off the lights around the place. The practice is really keeping the lights on, keeping this inner light on all the time. And now we can really see. What is it that we see? What is it that's illuminated through this investigation of the Dhamma? We see what is at the very foundation of right understanding. What's the cornerstone of right understanding? And that is we see into the nature of Nama Rupa. That is, we see that in each moment of experience, what is arising is a combination of mental, physical phenomena. There's knowing and an object. And that's all. We breathe, there's a rising movement, which is physical phenomena, and there's a knowing of it. No I, no self. We breathe in, there's the sensations and the knowing. There's a movement. As we walk, there's a movement and the knowing of it. There's just mental, physical phenomena, arising and passing, continually changing. Seeing that all of our experience is just this, becomes the basis for a whole series of further insights and understandings. So it's a very critical insight. How does it come? It comes through this particular factor of enlightenment, investigation of the Dhamma. What is the Dhamma? The Dhamma is this. It is this mind-body process. How do we investigate? Through mindfulness. So we just see moment after moment through our own observation. It's not a question of believing anything. If we want to discover what this process is and how it's working, what do we do? We sit down and look. It's so simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. It's very simple. Okay, we see that what's actually happening, free of a lot of concept, is simply mental, physical phenomena. There's the knowing and an object. We also begin to see how this mind-body is relating with one another. We see that they're distinct, but in relationship. So we see certain cause and effects happening. It's very easy to say. It's particularly clear as there's a, as there's a close observation of intention. Now, intention is that desire or willing in the mind which results in a movement. 
Let's do my favorite miracle. Just, just move your finger, but note the intention. How does it get to move? You know, what happens? What is this process? The finger of a corpse doesn't move. It just stays. So there's something else. It's clear that no corpse. Okay. There's something in the mind. There's some force in the mind, some intention, some desire. And the finger moves. It's really something, isn't it? <laughs> and it's our whole life is this. You know, our whole life is just a playing out on somewhat more complex movements, but not much more complex. You know, we're sitting and maybe there's strong pain. We're aware of the pain in the body. Because of the pain, a desire arises in the mind. Because of the desire, there's an intention to move. Because of the intention, there's a movement. And so we're just playing out this cause and effect interrelationship between mind and body. When we're observing it carefully, we see so clearly that there's no one. There's no one in there directing this show. It's just this relationship you know, of certain mental elements, certain physical elements. And it's, it's just this most beautiful dance to observe, to watch. Because it is, it is the dance of our life. It is who we are. Through this investigation of the Dhamma, through wisdom, through the illumination that comes from mindfulness, and we're mindful of the four foundations, and through that, a real wisdom develops into the nature of this mind and body. We see it. And again, it's stuff we see for ourselves if we're looking carefully. The investigation has that quality of careful looking, of inquiry. So that we're not kind of going through the day sort of just putting in our hours. It's doing it. It's sitting and walking and observing, but with a real sense of what is this? What is happening? How is it happening? Not having the question so we get a discursive answer. It's more having that sense of the question so that we really see for ourselves. How is it that the body gets up at the end of a sitting? How does it happen? That's the investigation of the Dhamma. As we continue looking and observing and investigating, we begin to see what we've talked about many times, the three general characteristics of experience. We see the changing nature. And we really know it from the inside. It's no longer just an idea or a concept or a general principle. If the mindfulness is strong in each moment, we see so clearly that the object and the knowing, both, are arising and vanishing. Nothing is lasting. And it's so freeing to see that deeply. Because the deeper we see it, the deeper we experience it in ourselves, the less attachment there is. We see the impermanence, we see the dukkha. Dukkha is just that quality of unsatisfactoriness, that changing phenomena cannot be satisfying ultimately. And so we stop grasping, we stop trying to hold on. And we get deeper and deeper insights into the selflessness of it all. That there's no one behind the process. There's no one to whom it's happening. What we call self, what we call I, is this process of change. It's really interesting to observe how what keeps the sense of self very strong and static are the many concepts we have about ourselves. 
we create concepts and ideas and identify with the concept and miss the fact that everything the concept is pointing to is just arising and passing very quickly. But there is no solidity, there is no essential core. But it's an ongoing process. There's a little poem by Li Po, a Chinese poet of some bygone century. which expresses so clearly this whole idea of selflessness. He said, We sit alone, the mountain in me, until only the mountain remains. Sit alone, the mountain in me, until only the mountain remains. We sit alone, the breath in me, until only the breath remains. We sit alone, the sensation in me, in every moment. It's that, that understanding. Okay, so there's mindfulness, there's investigation of the Dhamma. The third of the limbs of awakening, factors of enlightenment, is effort. This quality of energy in the mind and body This effort is considered to be the root of accomplishment, the root of realization. And we see it in anything, you know, whether it's in spiritual practice or in our lives. If we want to accomplish something, it takes some energy, it takes doing it. Wishing for things to happen is not sufficient. We actually have to create the conditions for things to happen. When energy and effort are are in balance, then there's a deep sense of it coming from a place of willingness. It's not a forcing, it's not a coercion. It's not a super-ego, I should be doing something. Real balance of effort is when there's this inner motivation, this inner fire that wants to be doing it, that's interested in doing it. It's a very different quality than forcing. There's something which comes disguised as effort and causes a lot of trouble. So it's good to keep an eye out for this one. Because often we think we're making effort But really what the quality of the mind is, is expectation. You know, it's that quality of the mind that's putting forth a lot of energy, but sort of reaching out for something to happen. That sense of expecting something to happen. And so then it's not really right effort. And it creates a whole sequence of mind states When there's strong expectation, the mind doesn't get concentrated. As it doesn't get concentrated, it gets disappointed. As it gets disappointed, it gets angry or slothful. And it's all coming because we didn't pick up that quality of expectation in the mind. So be be watchful for that one, because it can look like effort. Right effort is this sense of willingness and interest combined with or sourced by some sense of spiritual urgency. We really see the value and the importance of what we're doing. It's learning how to play the edge of what we're willing to be with. You know, and a retreat is such a wonderful time just to be right out there on the edge. The edge of effort, you know, of what we can do, what we can be with, what we can explore. And it's useless comparing ourselves with others, because what's the edge for one person is very different than the edge for another. 
last year when we were in India visiting Deepama, which was just a short time before she died, she was an incredible woman. And she was about five feet tall and full of the most incredible power and energy and wisdom. And it goes on and on. Sort of in one of our last discussions, she looked at me. She said, I think you should sit for two days. And she didn't mean a two-day retreat. She meant a two-day sit. <laughs> you know, sit down and get up two days later. And I looked at her and I started to laugh. Yeah. And all she said was, don't be lazy. <laughs> well, clearly, what was an edge for her <laughs> was <laughs> way over the edge for me. <laughs> I mean, it was totally incomprehensible. She once sat for three days. You know, and it's just, but it's this quality of effort, and, and she was so uh, inspiring of making the effort, you know, to really push one's limits, but in a balanced way, not with a sense of forcing, not with a sense of coercion, but with a sense when there's a willingness and there's an interest. That's that's what informs this this balance. There is mindfulness, investigation of the Dhamma, there's effort. The fourth factor of enlightenment is rapture or joy. Sometimes people think that the path is kind of heavy and plodding and wading through suffering. And it's all of those things. (laughs) But... It's also, and the direction it's going in, is the cultivation of these factors of enlightenment, which are wonderful lightnesses and brightnesses in the mind. One of these factors of awakening is great joy. The, the Pali word is pite, and it, it's hard to translate exactly. It means joy, it means zeal, it means pleasurable interest, means intensity. And the image which is used, imagine if you had been sort of out in the desert for days and days and days and you were hot and tired and thirsty and then in the distance you saw an oasis on water and it wasn't a mirage, it was really there. Can you imagine how you would feel on seeing the oasis? That's rapture. That's that quality of just Tremendous interest, <laughs> you know, and tremendous joy, and you know everything is everything gets very uplifted. It comes, this rapture comes in a lot of different ways, but as with all of the others, most directly it comes from a very close attention, and we're really there, moment after moment, with the object. This interest. This quality of interest starts to develop. It's also involved, or what what nourishes it or supports it, is a very important quality of self-acceptance. You know, so many of us, especially I think in the West, it seems to be a particularly Western conditioning, is to have this incredible amount of self-judgment. You know, and we're constantly judging ourselves and comparing and and it, that's a real downward, downward uh, force. Through the practice, as we learn how to be more and more accepting of all the parts of ourselves, there's an ease in the mind, there's a spaciousness in the mind. And out of this ease and spaciousness comes rapture, comes joy. It's a It's really a manifestation of a deep understanding of our basic worthiness. Now, each one of us, each being, has the potential of Buddhahood. Now, each mind, 
in existence has the potential of awakening, of purification. Someone once asked the Dalai Lama about feeling unworthy, and he gave such a great answer. He just said, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. You know, there was no, no compromise possible because of the understanding, the deep understanding of the absolutely core essential worthiness of every being. Precisely because all of these elements of enlightenment are possible. Recognizing that, tuning into that in ourselves creates a tremendous sense of joy. Now when we reflect that we are walking on the same path that enlightened beings have walked on for thousands of years. We're doing the same thing. Cultivating the same qualities, getting the same results. And so knowing that and reflecting on that, it connects us with something much bigger than our own particular little concerns of the moment. And it can fill the mind with a lot of rapture, with a lot of joy. There are a whole many different kinds of manifestations of rapture. Sometimes it's like chills in the body, and sometimes it's, it's movements of the body. It's said that the movements of the body can get so intense, and the body's so light, that that's actually how levitation happens. When the rapture factor gets so strong, that it just lifts the body up. A few years ago, we had one yogi here who just came to me. And he said he was lying in bed and he just felt his body go off the bed. And he didn't know there was a dream. I mean, he, didn't, he was a little unsure, and so he slipped his hand <laughs> underneath. <laughs> and he, he wanted to know what was happening. <laughs> <laughs> And I really didn't know whether it had actually happened or he was dreaming it, or, so I just said, did you notice? <laughs> but anyway, it is this rapture factor which it said makes this possible. I can see some of you. <laughs> okay, there's mindfulness, there's investigation of the Dhamma, there's effort, there's rapture or joy, there's lightness of the mind and body. The fifth of the factors of enlightenment is calm and tranquility. And the, the, particular, the particular function or characteristic of calm is it quiets the disturbances of the mind. That's what calm does. And what are the disturbances of mind? It's desire and wanting and aversion, and not liking. And so when calm is there, it's the mind which is free of wanting, free of aversion. Everything gets quiet. And there's a tremendous sense of ease in this quiet, of coolness. The image used to describe calm is being out in the very hot sun, you know, in the middle of summer, and then you just go into the shade of a tree, you know, and it's kind of that coolness and relief. People sometimes have come in interviews and complained about calm. You know, oh, it's so calm, nothing's happening, I wish something were going on. Enjoy it <laughs> while it lasts. <laughs> it's actually a factor of enlightenment. You know, this calm is a very powerful, and it can get it can get so so deep. And one of the great great beauties of the practice are these periods of calm. You know, the quieting of the mind and body. If that's happening, if the mind seems just to be resting very easily on the breath. Not much is happening, just there. 
everything is peaceful. That's fine. Just stay with it. Nurture that mind state. Know that it's calm. Let it grow. Let it deepen. The sixth of the factors of enlightenment is concentration. We've talked a lot about this. Concentration is this one-pointedness. And it can either be on a fixed object, as when we're doing metta, or it can be on changing objects, when we're doing vipassana. Concentration is the power of the mind. Just like a laser can cut through steel. When the mind is concentrated, when it's powerfully concentrated, it has this enormous power. And that's what gives us the ability, really, to develop deeper and deeper wisdom. How to strengthen this factor of samadhi, of concentration? The most effective way is through continuity. It's continuity of mindfulness which leads to, which develops the concentration. That's why so much emphasis is placed to try to minimize the breaks in the day. Where you're just moment after moment after moment, you're noting and noticing that steadiness or continuity. It's like leaving water on the stove to boil, not continually taking it off. Sometimes people have the impression that good concentration is years away. You know, and they just have this idea, well, I'll just do my best and hope that concentration comes in the next 20 years. I would like to do a little experiment to prove to you that actually you are absolutely capable of being completely concentrated. And so just, if you would hold out your arm, and very slowly and carefully, just move it across and feel, feel the movement. any problem. There's no problem. <laughs> you just feel the movement and you see right there and you stay with it. The mind is very concentrated in that. You know, just in that one simple movement, it's not wandering, it's not agitating, it's not jumping around, it's just there. It's easy because we took one little movement. If I said, be concentrated for an hour of this, would probably be harder. The trick is dividing the experience up into little movements. Just this little movement, and this little movement, this one breath, this step. If you divide it up into little enough segments, concentration is not difficult. It's just for that segment, and then the next, and then the next. It's not to suggest that you will never wander again. The mind will never go off. Because it will, but come back. I, what I feel happens so often is people get a mental picture of it being difficult to concentrate. And it's not difficult. We all have that capacity. We do it. And it's just remembering to come back again and again to very simple things, to very small events. And in that way, the concentration builds. The last of the factors of enlightenment and one of the great blessings of the practice, great blessings in the practice in our lives, is that factor of equanimity. Equanimity is like this great balance of mind. It's a quality of mind that is impartial that is willing to be with every experience, every object equally. Doesn't have preferences, it's not choosing. You know, in that samurai poem where he said, I make immovable mind my castle. That's really equanimity. Immovable mind doesn't mean that things Different things are not coming. Everything is coming. All life experience is coming. The mind is immovable. 
It's just there. It's impartial. It's equanimous. And there's this tremendous beauty in this state. There's a lot of fearlessness in equanimity. It has the quality, it's a very receptive quality. And it has the quality, I mean, if you could imagine just listening to you know, some, some really beautiful music, where the mind is just still, it's receiving the music. It's not going toward it, it's not pushing away, it's just there. And the music is happening. It's equanimity. As we practice, and from the mindfulness, a greater and greater equanimity comes. Mind becomes much less reactive to different experiences. It's not indifference. Indifference is the near enemy of equanimity. Because equanimity is very connected. It's very connected to what's there, but in a very even way. close with one of my favorite equanimity stories. It's about this Korean Zen master who lived you know, some hundreds of years ago in a time of a great revolution in Korea. And there was this general who was very violent, going around killing everybody. He came to the temple, and all the monks ran away. They were so terrified of this general. But only the abbot remained. And the general comes up and is, you know, brandishing his sword and very fierce and violent. And he's amazed that the abbot is just standing there, quite peaceful and equanimous. And this general says, don't you know that you're looking at one who can run you through without batting an eye? And the Zen master looks him back in the eye and says, you, sir, are looking at one who can be run through without batting an eye. <laughs> and said the general bowed and left. <laughs> can we be run through without batting an eye? That's pretty good equanimity. <laughs> these are the seven factors. These are the seven bojangas, limbs of awakening. There's mindfulness, investigation, effort, rapture or joy, calm, concentration, and equanimity. Three of them are arousing. The investigation, the effort, and the rapture are all arousing factors. The calm, concentration, and equanimity are tranquilizing factors. They need to be imbalanced. If we're too excited, there's too much energy, work it developing the last three, the concentration, the calm, the equanimity. If you're getting too kind of sleepy or low energy, too tranquil, work at developing the arousing factors of the investigation, of the effort, of the rapture. Mindfulness serves to both develop them all and to bring them into balance. Each moment that you're being mindful, every single moment through the day, these factors of enlightenment are being cultivated. It is this amazing process that's happening. You know, like the ripening of anything, you see the ripening of a fruit on a tree, day to day, if you go to look at it, you don't see much difference. But a process is going on. And at the end of the season, the fruit is ripe. It's, it's exactly what's happening. In the day-to-day, sitting-to-sitting, you may not see exactly the fruit of the practice, but these bojangas are being strengthened. So let's sit for a few minutes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.